You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Clear the aisles. The projectionist has smicha. Hi, I'm here with Yitzhak Kolokowski, and we're here to darshan about old movies and vintage TV, and I think we got a little bit of both. Not too old, though. Actually, we're, I think we're talking, I think we're both going to talk about movies that are products of a period known as the Cold War and movies that feature, at least I think we're going to talk about the Russians as sort of like the other side of the coin. Now, today, of course, Yitzchok, uh, we can't stop hearing about Russia. War crimes, uh, Putin, barbar- barbarism, uh, images that are coming out of those places. Uh, video and and still photography that's really uh, incredibly uh, uh, harrowing and terrible. Um, and we have to, I guess it's it's hard for many of the young people today to remember how the Russians were the boogeyman for so long. I mean, you definitely had the known as the Red Chinese, but Hollywood, uh, along with television, realized that the Russians uh, were indeed uh, our uh, they were our nemesis in many ways, and we were worried about uh, mutual destruction. But there was, uh, but there developed, uh, at least in uh, the films, there was films that really were a product of the Cold War, where the good guy Americans uh, had to perhaps make the world safe uh, against the uh, intrusion and of communism. But it's funny, it's like that so many films actually sort of stayed away from painting the Russians as the ultimate bad guys. Um, I mean, Reagan, everybody knows about Reagan referring to the Russians as the evil empire. Uh, but in Hollywood, there's, uh, there, there, I, I'm sure we have films with the Russians as, 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 as the boogeyman. But I, I actually want to talk about some films where the Russians and Americans, there was actually a sort of like a, uh, an equation between the Russian and Americans. It's true, the Russians were perhaps um, seen as much more militaristic and, and maybe a tad more aggressive. Um, but there's a number of films that actually posited the Russians almost as sort of our our mirror image and i think there's no film that really you know brings that out as as well as a sort of little obscure film that that gets a little bit of play on on tcm and other places called the double man uh, it's based on a a, a 1958 or uh, um that this film is is that it stars as the cia uh, sort of super agent who is being targeted by the russians uh, Yul Brenner, you know, and Yul Brenner, who uh, yeah, sort of you figure he had a career playing heavies, you know, playing um, Pharaoh in uh, the Ten Commandments, uh, and even you know, I, I guess sort of uh, sort of um, really uh, like Oriental or uh, characters, uh, characters that were from the other world, not not necessarily Oriental in terms of what we call Chinese or Korean, but rather from the ori from that other part of the world. Uh, films where like Taras Bulba, <laughs> where he played this Cossack, uh, uh, you know, Mongol um, gypsy characters. That's sort of what you know he was about, and that's where he was from. But in this film, he plays like an American guy. His name is Dan Slater. Um, and 
you know, shaved head and all. And of course, it's a little bit of spoiler here. I don't know. We should, we should start saying spoiler alerts again. I don't know. They do that in a lot of the other uh, podcasts about movies, you know, spoiler alert. Um, but it's really not much of a spoiler because, you know, it's called the double man. And you know that and you sort of get these very heavy handed hints that Dan Slater, this uh, Buell Brenner's character, uh, is going to be pushed into a Russian plot to investigate the death, the very violent death of his son on a, in a ski resort in the Austrian Alp, in the Austrian Alps. And um, it, when he goes there, they have plotted something f- for years, knowing exactly how the way he thinks this cold, ruthless a super spy who basically doesn't trust anything, but they've gotten it worked out that they will lead him through sort of a little bit of a honey trap, uh, but into a situation where they will be able to replace him with a double who is also, of course, played by Yul Brenner, who has studied totally and completely all his habits. And then he'll go back to the United States uh, in tow with uh, the CIA agent out of Zurich. And that guy will then bring him back and then to Washington. And this way, he's just going to obviously cause havoc with a Russian mole in the uh, uh, the upper echelon of power. Um, so that, that's really the, basically the plot. Now, what's interesting is, is that, you know, Yul Brenner, Although he could be quite expressive, I still remember, you know, he's his sort of uh, even, you know, in, in the Ten Commandments, you sort of give Rachmanis for him a little bit um, in The King and I, which, of course, was the film that he won an Oscar for. Um, you know, there's you see a, a certain character arc and a certain development as a human being in this film. He is a cold, ruthless type of person. And the film makes a great point of saying that even it's true, maybe the world will fall into the Russian hands more if he gets replaced. But this guy that they're replacing him with is sort of pretty much the same sort of evil son of a bee as he is, right? At least in the sense of being, you know, because why is why was his son in the Alps? Is because he couldn't raise his son because this this sixteen year old boy or however old he was, 16 or 15, however old he was, really didn't feel like he could be loved and raised or supposedly for his own protection, he was sent there under the care of one of uh, 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 Dan Slater's former MI5 British played, uh, MI5 British um, compatriots who was now since retired and running some sort of school, uh, international school for kids from Europe and from America that happened to be able to go there. Uh, Clive Revel plays this part, and he's he's probably the standout actor, I would say, um, in this film. Um, the uh, the the Russian uh, people who are plotting this are pretty are pretty much. You know, I, I looked them up on uh, when I was doing a little research here. I think some of those are character actors that played Nazis and no goodniks uh, continuously throughout uh, the fifties and sixties, um, but you know the you know he doesn't even you know when he comes to the funeral they've started the funeral without him and you know he comes late and you know he doesn't have anything to say so it's clear that this is a fellow who is has a a lot of issues his wife has died but he's someone who trusts no one 
is someone who sort of realizes that trap is being set, but he feels he could somehow get out of it. Um, uh, the film has two other uh, stars I should mention. Um, one of them is Lloyd Nolan. And Lloyd Nolan, of course, uh, had a, a very big career in Hollywood playing character parts and on television. Uh, and he plays, uh, for some reason, and I don't know if he was somehow at that time, you know, suffering from a broken leg or something, Lloyd Nolan plays his character in a wheelchair. Um, and uh, that he's the head of the CIA and he's sort of on the phone trying to make sure that, uh, uh, that a trap isn't really being set and let's get Slater back out of there. Um, the honey uh, trap uh, with a character that you sort of wonder, is she in on it? Is she not in it? Are the Russians using her? As played by uh, the very beautiful Britt Eklund, who at that point, I think, was married to Peter Sellers. Um, and uh, she eventually made a number of films with him. In this film, she doesn't, although she was later a Bond girl, I think, in The Spy Who Loved Me, um, in this film, she doesn't go all Bond uh, girl, meaning, you know, as this, uh, this, this incredible luscious piece of cheesecake, although you can tell, you know, she, there's a number of references to how beautiful she is, and she actually has a certain sort of innocence in this film, a sort of uh, schoolgirl innocence, despite the fact that she's obviously a mature woman. Uh, and she is somehow the one who can uh, lead uh, Slater to what, because she was on the slopes or going up on the, um, uh, in, in the uh, car that takes them up, in the cable car that takes them up to the top of this treacherous mountain. Uh, there is a lot of uh, wonderful shots of people um, skiing. It was filmed on location. Fortunately, they had, uh, when they have to show, uh, you know, Yul Brenner, who's supposedly an expert skier, uh, skiing after Brit, uh, it's, 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 it's one of these back projection shots where you could tell there was a guy sitting there, you know, they were sitting in the, in the studio and the back of them, they were just projecting in the back, uh, the snow, the snow bank. It's done really in a way that's, you know, quite embarrassing and and amateurish. Uh, And even where um, they're supposed to, you know, he is supposed to fall. You can tell that, you know, it's it's some stunt man with a shaved head. (laughs) It's not Neil Brenner. In fact, even the fight scenes, although Brenner was, you know, quite a, um, he was an acrobat when he was growing up and he was, uh, he was known to be a person, a very, very physically fit fellow, despite having a couple of accidents happen to him. In this film, you can see that they, uh, you can see where uh, in the fight scenes, even not where he's fighting his double, <laughs> that uh, it's clearly a stunt person doing. And I was a little bit disappointed on that, but the, the, the film uh, was, um, as I said, it was May 1967, and many uh, people have commented on it that was very similar in, in, in tone to a lot of what was happening in television at that time. Um, and the, uh, you know, we know that, of course, uh, television was very much influenced in some ways uh, by the Bond phenomenon that, that sort of took off like a rocket ship, you know, in 1962. And but Bond, of course, was, you know, this suave super spy who clearly was much better than his antagonists here. That's not the case. However, I should point out, as you know, that even you know the second Bond film from Russia with Love, which some people see as the best film, really indicates that Bond isn't going to be fighting the Cold War, although he's sort of like a, a Cold War spy. He's really fighting against a super evil uh, umbrella 
organization, which is worse than the Americans and the Russians and the English specter, which sort of like is the is this um, puppet master manipulating everything. And I think you, you find the similar thing in, in the Bond knockoff television program, um, the, the Man from Uncle, where you also have, I think, Thrush. I think is that is this uh, oh, and, and of course in uh, in the satirical um, get smart as I mean to get smart you have yeah. chaos right so yeah. right all of those things as I as I think I told you before when we weren't talking about it, it it's like we're afraid to zero in on the Russians like the, you know the the Russians themselves and this is really part of what double man indicates that you can have a Russian guy being the CIA guy, the Russian guy takes him over. In fact, when they're fighting, he says, you know, there's, there can only be one of us, which sort of, sort of, you know, gets back to, um, uh, you know, this theme that the cold war is taking its toll on us. I mean, Jean Le Carre, of course, uh, you know, you know, made a career out of showing the ugly side of, what the Cold War was doing uh, to uh, the operatives—that you know, the the noble um, sort of give up your life, do anything for the sake of the country—he uh, showed that in in, in Tinkle Tailor's Soldier Spy, um, and in The Spy Who Came In from the Cold. I mean, that was basically a whole genre of sort of anti-glorifying, uh, uh, you know, the cause. To say that, well, maybe it's true, democracy is definitely better than communism, but at what cost? There's this, there's this secret um, service or CIA or, or whatever it is that's all involved in black op- operations that have sullied all those, those protagonists to the point that you know, among themselves, uh, they're as black as their, as their enemies, despite what they're saying about the cause that they're fighting for. And I think that, um, you know, the film, The Double Man, actually, when when Yul Brenner uh, Slater says, you'll never be able to pull it off. Uh, you'll never be able to uh, convince because you can't duplicate a human. And the answer from this uh, fellow, who, you know, who the mastermind of the Russian plot says, well, you think that there's something called a soul? A person, a soul, is that something that p- people have been sold? No pun intended there. That basically, if you can, Pavlov has proven that if you're able to um, uh, mimic or emulate a person's reactions to things and learn them, that's all that a person is, is really a, a person, is, is, is a living being who reacts to stimuli, uh, and then that builds up and becomes the habit that forms what a person is, which is really, in a way, I guess what the film is actually suggesting, Uh, obviously we come from two different cultures, but is there really something inherently greater in one culture than the other is, does, do we, are we able to channel that aspect of soul and the film, um, although Clive Revel, who uh, has thrown uh, away the mantle of being a spy and really is very against that whole world, finds himself drawn into it. Um, and he is the one who is put into a position at the very end of the film um, where he needs to make a choice between the two, you know, the Russian Kalmar and Slater. You know, you have two Yul Brenners. Which one is he going to shoot? Um, what's interesting is, is that he can't, he can't tell the difference. Uh, he's not sure. And uh, Slater, the one that we know who Slater says, shoot us both. 
<laughs> you have to. That's the only thing you could do is shoot us both. And um, he makes a choice. Not and 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 the film, although it leaves, <clears throat> leaves it somewhat ambiguous. I mean, I'll let you know if our if, if our listeners want to see it, you can you know let us know what you think. Um, there is a sense of ambiguity. Who is the one he shot? And perhaps a question as to whether it really made a difference. <laughs> so that is really an interesting film. I just want to say one more point about the film. Um, you know, I said it was somewhat amateurish in the way it was presented. And it's interesting because it was an Academy Award director, Franklin J. Schaffner, who uh, won an Oscar for um, Patton and, of course, was the director of another classic film, which I, I think you must like. It's called uh, Planet of the Apes, right? Um which you know spawned a whole uh it became a whole series of films that that spawned and of course you know franklin j shafter uh you know seems to have been a, a director you know the the battle scenes in Patton, um and of course the big reveal scene in, in in planet of the apes of where the astronauts really are um and he also directed a number of uh, he was supposedly a very innovative director for things that he did in the 50s for playhouse 90 so it's, it's 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 interesting that this film sort of you know although some of the like I said the scenery and the action is somewhat interesting going on the cable cars um, he doesn't seem to have found his stride but when I was thinking about it the theme itself is somewhat similar I mean Patton although it, it really you know talks about it's really a, a biopic but it it really um, is able to expose a lot of George C Scott's um playing Patton, a lot of Patton's ugliness. Um and you know it, it sort of does, although it, it, it I don't think the film was a glorification of war, um, Patton. Uh it, obviously you're rooting for the Americans, but again, even in Patton, I think there is somewhat of an equation between uh, the two sides and, and Planet of the Apes as well really is also a film that sort of you know, bursts the bubble of the noble astronaut who's trying to explore, right? And clearly, if you, as everybody knows, I don't think it's a spoiler to know what happened, you know, that, that somehow, you know, the apes, you know, have taken over the planet. Um, I think it's also really these, so these films that Schaffner made. It wasn't the original story, if you ever read the, the original Pierre, book. It was a Pierre Boyer, right? Pierre Boyer, uh, right? Yeah, and the, and the Boyer novel, the astronaut goes back to Earth to find that that the apes had taken over Earth. He did go to another planet and then came back to Earth to 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 discover what had happened to Earth. So it was a similar story, but it wasn't. Whereas here, it was you know they just they just wound up on Earth, you know. Right, but 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 I think you know if you take these three films and, and another film that Schaffner made, um, you know, The Boys from Brazil, right, which. You know, really talks about you know it was based on the Iru of Vin book where they're trying to create Hitler, and you know again it, it really I think all these films Schaffner seems to be in you know he really is operating in in in, in shades of gray because of course in that film they're trying to produce Hitler by they've cloned they've cloned Hitler and they're trying to reproduce uh, the the Führer by making sure to kill off. Um, his father at a certain age and trying to, they tried to place those kids in the type of homes that were similar uh, in terms of the nurture that created the monster known as Hitler. So, 
again, the film sort of is like, is indicating that who knows how we become. It isn't necessarily that you have this demonic human, right? But you can actually, but perhaps other forces can make that happen. And who knows if they're going to happen or not. And I, so I think there's sort of like, a, you know, again, I can't go through this whole filmography, but it seems like Schaffner was, you know, he seems like he had sort of like a, 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 a definitely a tempered vision. Um, I don't think he was, I don't think he was actually, you know, as much as people love Patton, I know Ronald Reagan um, wanted, he, he, he felt that he could have been offered the role and he always said he'd love to have played Patton. Um, I think all of those films, um, you know, were, were really somewhat subversive and n- none of them more so uh, than uh, The Double Man. So I, I, a- I think, I think it, the interesting thing is the level is that do we have any Russian movies, uh, Soviet movies that approach, that made that same um mm-hmm. that, that same uh moral equivalency i i don't know i'm not i'm not, a, I'm not an expert in that's a very good question i mean i know that um you know, the, you know we talked in the past about even some of the nazi films right and i think um the beauty of those films we, we we did a program if you remember about that when we talked about cabaret and some of those nazi films of what they're able I, it would be interesting to note whether the stuff the soviets were cranking out you know, were more, uh, uh, let's say, less subtle in terms of positing the Americans as these, you know, nefarious uh, colonialists who just wanted to uh, exploit the worker and, you know, and which is what, of course, they said. Of course, they wanted to set up a, you know, a, a situation of, of fat cats that were running things. I, I think maybe we should also, you know, reckon in that 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 Hollywood and was probably hoping that in some way they could maybe market these films in the Eastern Bloc. You know, I, I don't know. I, I, we're I, now, that we're dealing with that now in China. Right. That, you know, Hollywood is, is scared to death to offend China, and they're in some way complicit with, with a lot of the atrocities going on in China right now. Well, yeah. Well, put it this way. The bottom line is always money. And I think that the Bond films and possibly even this film, although I don't think it made much money, um, uh, they might have had that in, in their minds that, you know, maybe, you know, we could we could it could show in other places in Germany and perhaps maybe even the Soviet Union as well. They could probably work something out and um, they didn't want to close off a market. And we talked about, of course, how even in the in the 1930s, as the Nazi regime was already uh, quite apparently uh, a, a threat and a danger to all democracy. Um, they were still making films that they hoped would be accepted in Germany and didn't want to offend them by, you know, having too much sympathy for the Jewish plight. So there's no, you know, it's possible. It's all, you know, Schaffner isn't just a, um, a thinker, but he might be listening to what his Hollywood, uh, his Hollywood honchos are telling him, although this film was, I think, made in Britain, but, you know, funded by whatever Warner Brothers that I think was behind it, that they actually were happy about this sort of thing because this way they weren't closing things off. But I know you so you have actually, you know, I've given you a lot of touch points here because I know what you're going to be talking about. And a number of the actors and people that I've mentioned have a, a tremendous relevance to the film, I think, that you want to recommend as sort of like a an example of the of that Cold War craziness. So well, why don't you go ahead? Again, and again, it's going away from because I, I know you love very much. Uh, I've 
I've seen it two or three times, and one of the times I saw it was actually on the big screen because the TCM has uh, a program with Fathom Events. Just about once a month, they broadcast movies live into uh, into movie theaters, so you can see on a very big screen, probably bigger than uh, well by that time, you know, we, there was CinemaScope and everything, so you did have those big screens. But uh, big, but some of the movies that they show, you know, certainly the older movies from the 30s and early 40s were not on such big screens, but they're not showing as many of those movies as they were. But I did get to see this movie from the 1960s, the Dr. Strangelove, or how I stopped to, uh, or I, how I learned to stop worrying and love the bomb right. uh, on on the big screen, thanks to TCM. It's almost- but why don't you talk a little bit about why you love Strangelove? Well, I, I mean, you and I were both discussing about this. I think we can agree that that was Kubrick's greatest film. Um, his, his really, really, his masterpiece uh, was one of his first. It wasn't his first. He made quite a few before oh, that. Yeah, well, you, you have The Killing... Uh, which is a, a really a great film that he made in the fifties about you know a, a, a heist going gone wrong, but yeah yeah that was you know the, was before that also there was there was a few that were before that but mm-hmm. it was uh, it's I think as far as I can remember it's the only one of his films that I've actually made it through I I, I tried to watch two thousand one a few times and I'm a big science fiction buff. I just could not make it through that movie. It's it's it, it takes a it takes sure. it takes a lot of patience to make it through through that through two thousand one. I remember Rabbi Weinberger saying, "Oh, it's a very hush of a movie." I remember in high school, it, it was, and I said, "You know, I, I couldn't make it through it." I just it was. Yeah, well, look, two thousand one. You really have to see it also on the big screen and just let it pour over you. Uh, yeah. Strange Love hits the ground running with comedic power and, and the whole time it yeah there's, right it is it is it, again it, it, it it's riveting it's a riveting film and extremely funny like i'm saying it's extremely funny and the humor i think has held up uh even today but um you know yeah, yeah. look kubrick you have to understand it's like was a was primarily, and he made his, he was a Life magazine photographer. He was a cinematographer. He, to him, the image was everything, crafting the image. You know, unlike Schaffner, who's sort of a sort of a hack in that way, Kubrick wanted everything set up, uh, you know, just right. A Jewish guy out of, out of New York, um, a real, you know, part of that New York uh, Jewish renaissance uh, of the 40s and 50s. Uh, of you know intellectuals and writers and thinkers and people that were you know involved in, in plays and films that was you know that's where Kubrick comes out of and um, you know Strange Love you know really those images are, are really uh, you, know, you know so so jarring and so unique you know um, you know the War Room right <laughs> you know, just the way that War Room was was set up. Um, I mean, everybody knows the last shot, you know, spoiler alert, of course, and that's, but, but even, let's talk about, you know, the use, we'll talk about sellers in a minute, you know, the husband of, of Britt Eklund in a minute, and, and, you know, how strong, you know, how Kubrick wanted him to play even more characters than he did. He was supposed to also play the Slim Pickens character, but talk a little bit about some of those, uh, some of those people that, that Kubrick. Oh, man, that's really, really quite a, uh. Yes, thing. Even though he was a rather minor character in the film, he really he, he 
you know, he's become a big star and he really, uh, he really showed himself. He showed his chops there in this film. Right. He's actually one of the, uh, in case you don't realize, the film is really about um, a, um, a, 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 a tragic mistake that really could be the end of the world uh because well, um, it is it is I mean, <laughs> yeah it is well with nuclear I fallout think it's a spoiler i think most people know what, what right so but but at least the basic plot of the film is for people who don't know uh, what strange love is it's it's that um a a a uh a sort of deranged army colonel uh and specifically uh who's at norad's uh command i guess out in the west somewhere has specifically uh coded uh the the planes to uh attack uh the russians and and drop a bomb on some major city in russia which they know will immediately result in retaliation and then the conceit of the film is which it shared with <laughs> the other film that sort of has the ex- almost exact same plot but was done not as a comedy but as a real stark drama failsafe based on the book by Fletcher Knobel um, was that there is a certain time where you can't call the planes back because you're, there was a fear that the radio um, connection might be actually uh, a subterfuge so they had to assume that once they were given that, that they couldn't be called back because you have to be worried that maybe the Russians had somehow gotten into our method of communication. And therefore, you sort of like, you ignore all commands, even if they sound like they're coming from the president. That's sort of like the fail-safe area where it's too late. And once they're out, they're going to be out no matter what. And it's the American strike first, which results in uh, the Russian retaliation. Then you have the mutual destruction. So that has occurred. Um, I, but and also in, in in this movie, so the Russians had a new type of bomb that would be a doomsday device, and that was really part of the. That they were going to unleash that would basically destroy the right. It would. Do, it wasn't just as, as in failsafe where you know uh, they took out Mo- we take out Moscow or whatever city it was, and they take out New York, and then there's going to be perhaps the um, the um, the nuclear fallout. But there's actually uh, this device that could perhaps um, even do much more damage, making the whole planet. Uh, inhospitable, and everybody would have to live underground if they could survive at all. But it's really done. Really, it seemed that they would survive underground at that point. You know, I mean, I know they were discussing that and the animals to be bred and slaughtered, and you know, the, you know, they'd have to. You know, talk, they spoke about how you know monogamy would have to go out the window for the <laughs> sake of preserving. Well, again, that's really that is really again. You're sort of that, that's really you know Peter Sellers' tour de force speech at the very end of the film. Where you realize that the ultimate bad guys here is, is strange love because you know Peter Sellers. Before we get them, let, let's talk about the you know before, before we get to Peter Sellers playing all these these parts. We talk about a guy I, you know George C. Scott, who was you know who had sort of I think one of his first films was Anatomy of a Murder, which was a couple of years earlier to that. Uh, where you know, and then I think he was also in The Hustler as well. Um, I think this film. Uh, before he played in Patton, which as I mentioned earlier before, um, he plays this, you know, Buck Turgidson, uh, this, you know, gung-ho general who sort of has figured all this out and is in some ways happy 
that the mistake has occurred. And then maybe we could ride this out and, you know, we could we could deal with the casualties and this way we'll win the war, <laughs> even though we're going to knock off, you know, how much of the planet. And um, you know, that that is quite, you know, he's a he's he's a comedic figure in terms of his ruthlessness. Um, you know, this, the 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 colonel, Jack T. Ripper is of course played by someone that Kubrick used in the 50s was known as almost the ultimate tough guy of the 50s Sterling Hayden who was in a number of you know classic film noirs besides the killing and um also had a memorable part in the godfather but you know Sterling Hayden you know you, you, he was a perfect choice to play somebody you know extremely serious but obviously off their rocker and um who was the one he was worried about the the, the fluoride the fluoride <laughs> and, and his precious bodily fluids and yes and sterling hayden again to a t just playing it perfectly perfectly you know in this insane romp um those two are really standouts sterling hayden and george and scott and then of course um you know you have sellers who plays not only the president as the most mousy <laughs> you know, milk toast character. Um, I mean, it's just incredible. I, I, I always, it's always an, an, impre- an incredible thing to hear a, a British person do an American accent. I, I remember we, uh, one of my rebbeim in yeshiva was, uh, was uh, uh, Rabbi uh, uh, Yaakov Usher Sinclair, who himself had a background in Hollywood. And he did this one, uh, speech you know like talking like kind of making fun of a uh an american movie you know actor you know re- receiving an award and like how arrogant these award ceremonies are things <laughs> and he and he said uh he made this whole speech with an american accent and he, and then uh, one of the uh one of the bathroom he said why 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 don't British people just talk like that all the time? Like, why do we have to put up with these British accents? Well, you, you know, the, the Hollywood is full of a history of Brits who have come over here and made a career out of you know using you know American accents. They seem to be able to do it much better than we can do the other thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, you have Vivian Lee. Um, even Liz Taylor really came to the United States with with a British accent, uh, which she still had you know tinges of it as well. You know Hugh Laurie in television, of course. Laurie, I was thinking about yeah. yeah. Uh, Hugh Laurie is, is is can do it perfectly, but you really go through um, you know the 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 pages of Ho- of Hollywood's greatness. I mean, we talked about Errol Flynn last week. He was an Australian, but you know he could pretty much uh, remove his Australian accent uh, to sound like you know. I guess any American also, you, you know, Mel Gibson, you don't, you don't hear this. Mel Gibson right. also in Australia, but you know, uh, again, and um, Charlie stares on, I mean, again, there's a, the list is almost endless of, 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 of characters like that. But I think the point is that he doesn't just do the accent. He captures such an American mentality, um, you know, supposedly, you know, seemingly a good person, but obviously incompetent, who doesn't really understand things somehow became elected president and needs everything to be explained to him. And it's just, he, he, the character reminds me very much of like principal Skinner on, on the Simpsons. Okay. You know, that type of, uh... 
Could be. I, I actually see him as more, you know, uh, you know uh, perhaps in the fact that things were going uh, awry and out of control, and he was trying to feel that he was doing something. But, but, he, but he, you know, he, you know, when, when he's talking, even even the Bob Newhart shtick of talking on the phone and and, and yeah. making making you believe what the other person is saying, and you can, you know, Kubrick does a little bit of the voice you can hear on the other side of the phone, but. But, but 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 just the way he's reacting is is, is perfect. Now, besides playing the president, he also plays a British RAF officer who is attached to um, the base where um, you know where Jack T. Ripper is. And of course, there's something going on over there where they're trying to you know they've they've boarded up the base, so none of the uh, the rest of the standard. Uh, uh, armed forces can stop what's going on, right? And um, so he does a great job playing that that British uh, fellow. And you know, and then the last couple of minutes, of course, he uh, uh, sellers his strange love himself. And I, I think part of what they did—I'm not sure if this was in the book at all—that sellers plays a Nazi, right? He plays right. a Nazi who has been. Uh, and this was really, you know, Kubrick's criticism, and maybe it was in the book itself, as I would say, that we based, we pilfered the Nazis, who were these evil demonic uh, forces who wanted to really enslave and, and, and eliminate so much of the, uh, of the of the world population, and we just wanted to get their brains, to get their um, to get their scientists like Werner von Braun and others, yeah. and that's sort of what you know Sellers was was channeling there. And I'm uh, thinking of uh, uh, Tom Lehrer's song about Werner von Braun. <laughs> yes, yes, and 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 that clearly, you know, you know, when Sellers, you know, he's this example of he's sitting there in the war room as one of the most trusted people uh, in the U.S., and he's somebody that was part of a regime that that really was terrible, and I think that's part of uh, you know the 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 horror and comedy of that film. And 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 the the role that he wasn't able to play because I think Sellers uh, had, had 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 in 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 preparation of playing this Western cowboy, and it would have been great to see Sellers do that. Um, you know, it would have been he somehow he hurt his back, and because of that, Kubrick put out a call to this, you know, to an Andy Devine type fellow who was in just a, a regular that was in a number of Westerns playing just, you know, all shucks like the old cow hand, it's Slim Pickens. And, you know, Slim Pickens is, um, is, 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 is in that role. Um, I forgot what, what his name is, Yitzhak. Um, is, you know, Major King Kong, right? Uh, and, and he is, uh, and, and Keenan Wynn, always a, a fine addition to any film. Uh, as Colonel Bat Guano, <laughs> so you know you you really have um, Jack the Ripper, you know making Kong, uh, Bat Guano, um, even Buck uh, Turgidson, you know because it's clearly that the thing that interests him most, besides killing off the Russians, is being involved with these women, which is where we see him in the very beginning of the film, you know Turgid being the the key word there so yeah yeah it, it really is a um a classic and although the cold war i think has sort of receded in people's minds um and the idea of mutual uh, destruction but with with uh, putin 
threatening again, right? That who knows what sort of who knows what sort of bombs he might unleash. Um, I think that it's a uh, you know I, I, mean, I, I think I, it, know, when I turn on the the news and the on on the on the internet and they're telling us you know you get we it, it's almost doing the the old duck and cover cartoon they're, they're redoing it now telling us how how you're going to survive a, a nuclear war how you're going to survive the fallout you have to wash your clothes and cover yourself up and not look at you know and like all these and these are things that i was you know i mean you you grew up more when it was much more pertinent but i it was a fear that i had throughout my childhood of nuclear war and now it's i i remember just very distinctly having all kinds of nightmares about about wow. nuclear war uh, as a child and it was something i was very very frightened of and and now to, that this has come back again this specter has come back and it's, it's something we never expected you know uh, the way something we haven't seen in in europe i would say uh, you know uh, other than than the the invasion of Hungary when Hungary tried to uh, in Czechoslovakia in Czechos- yeah. Czechoslovakia and again you know people and, yeah, from and, and Yugoslavia Milosevic you know, and Chechen the yeah, Chechen massacres yeah. are happening there yeah. I, I think here it's it, it, you know it's expanded in a way that perhaps you know you know dwarfs even even those uh, yeah. periods especially you know the access that we have to um, to television and cell phones, where so many of those images have come back. I, I don't know if Strange Love or Double Man are, is, is any sort of antidote um, to, to any of this, but I think it's, um, I think, you know, it, it definitely, you know, you have this thing of, you know, yeah. I mean, the frightening thing is that, you know, when, when we were fighting communism, we were fighting an ideology. And this, we're fighting just just plain barbarism like what exactly is happening here this is something that's it's so difficult to understand it's not it's not you know when we were fighting the nazis we knew we were fighting the most evil ideology imaginable we were fighting the communists we were fighting an ideology that wound up killing more innocent people than the nazis did and then we're and now we're we're not fighting we're sitting back watching something happen anticipating when are we going to fight we're kind of you know in uh, 1939 1940 you know waiting for for the world war not knowing where or you know or even you know before world war one looking at it's much more of a world war one type of a situation where you know it's much more baffling you know i mean it's it's very clear that that putin is not only the aggressor but the but is very clearly evil although there i guess there are some people questioning that but it's very to me it seems rather strange for anyone to to buy into to putin's uh uh, uh propaganda there you know where, where he's he's dealing with something that someone who's not aggressive to him you know and it's the whole thing is very uh i mean i can understand you know the people say you know you don't poke a bear that type of thing but still nonetheless the the level of aggression and the and the sheer horror that we're, we 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 haven't seen anything like this in Europe uh, for for a long time. That is true. This definitely is a is it's it's it takes us way back even but much before the era that we're discussing. And, and which Ukraine, was... you know, Ukraine is a, a place that has a strong place in in the Frum world and the, you know in the Hasidic world, Uman and Mezhbuz and Berditchev and all of these 
towns, you know, and uh, I, I've been there. I've been, I've been to all of those places personally. Uh, and it's a beautiful country. And so it's also, I think it hits home in a way that, uh, you know, when, when we hear about Afghanistan or Iraq, which is also horrific and this, uh, you know, but we, or we don't, or, and we don't hear about the constant fighting in, in the, in Pakistan, between Pakistan and India, which has been going on for a long time, and we never hear anything about it. You're right. In, in many ways, we're ethnocentric, and and somehow this, you know, means that much. Uh, just to wrap things up here, I think that part of you know we go back to even other films like uh, that I've praised before, like Ninochka, which also really dealt with there's there's there is this sense that the Russians, um, and, and maybe even the Ukrainians, despite the thousands of miles of distance. There is, there still is a lot of commonality. Um, I think, I, I think one thing about Ninochka is that it it shows, it 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 shows the emptiness of of the communists. How they're all trying to convince themselves. Right, but, but, but but I think what Ninochka does is really give you a tremendous sympathy for the Russian people, and I think that's something exactly. which I think something that you know again I I, I this would, pro this this. I'm saying, you know, it, show, it shows that the people are are the victims of this ideology, and they don't right. really believe right. it. They're trying to convince themselves that that. Uh, okay, but 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 the program, you know, our program, you know, the projectionist is really not a, you know, we, we're not trying to get on our soapbox. Although I appreciate your passion here, but I think one thing we could say, and I think this could be true about almost, you know, all the films that we mentioned, you know, in, in some ways, you know, is that you know the people. Are, are, are quite similar, and therefore, it, I think it's wrong to demonize uh, Russian citizens here because they don't necessarily, you know, renounce their citizenship and you know and say, oh, like you know, join the anti-Putin forces. I mean, these are just these are these are just Russian actors or Russian people in the ballet or a Russian person. Um, it, it's very difficult to to go out there and 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 strip yourself from your country and to denounce your country yeah, i don't i don't blame them for that and i think it's also that's also i agree with you that it's horrific to to blame them and, and 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 many of these people have been they've, they've thrown them out they've canceled their visas uh you know the backlash i think is it's done in such the way we're reacting to it i think in many ways is primitive and i think these films that we're suggesting i think could really uh, perhaps tell us some of the folly of and, and and how in, in some ways the people are somewhat the same. It's not to excuse uh, the the evil that's that's done by the masters are in control, but you know, you know we, we we do talk about television. You know the the series Hogan's Heroes. I think you know in a certain way brings that idea out. You know you're dealing with the Nazis, but showing them as bumbling, as foolish, as uh, all kinds, whatever we're presenting them as, but also it humanizes them and you know the the irony of of you know of jewish it, it, it's it's a program them. that okay you know we're really getting into you know here's where i think there's a line of demarcation that needs to be put into the sand here mm-hmm. um even though it might be true that there were just a number of germans who you know didn't really know what was going on and perhaps can just be like colonel klink or schultz um, I think the by by a yid. That's the irony. Yeah, yeah, I understand. Yeah, and 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 Clink was also a yid. Yeah, um, yeah. They, they they were both Jews. The point yeah. I'm trying to make is is that I think 
it's when the sheer enormity of the Holocaust and Chaplin said the same thing. He said he would not have made the great dictator had he known about the extent of the Nazi horror. So to have a film about a concentration camp where, you know, the, the, the Americans are having a good time and somehow, you know, escaping and coming back. And, you know, it might have been true that in some ways they weren't all so bad and there was you know, sort of an understanding. But but I think there was there was necessary, and maybe it still is, to recognize how terrible what the Nazis' plan was and the Nazi ideas, and and in ways that, despite what Stalin and others have done in Russia, um, you know, the mass murders, somehow you know we, we doesn't really necessarily apply uh, to you know the terrible things that were done in the name of communism. Um, I think there was there's still uh, but this way, yeah, there's definitely a demarcation that Nazism. There's a reason why Nazism is more uh, is more of a an archetype of evil than. And I think it still needs to be perceived that way, despite the subtlety that that is there. And, and again, one could make the case, which many have, that if you look in totality from the rise of, of communism through you know perestroika. That more people were killed and more were sent and lives were destroyed. More of Jews lost their identity and through Timoyon and, and, and assimilation, assimilation. And all that is true. But I think um, it's the intensity of the Nazi period in its, in, in its brevity and, in its, and it's, it's an extreme total desire to annihilate. You know that's that's the point I've never thought of because I've I, you know I've often pondered this this point and but to you know you make an excellent point there that if if the not if the Nazi regime had lasted as long as the communist regime it would, would have been it would have been much worse it would have been they would they would have gotten their final solution that would have you know, and again world domination to a point that would have remade the planet you know in a way that you know as you know Philip K Dick. You know, uh, sort of, you know, conceived of. So, look, as we've gotten on our soapbox here, we will probably leave that for next time. Take care, everybody. Watch your step on the way out. We'll catch you next time. Be well. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 